Republicans are going to call us socialists no matter what we do. Welcome to What's Left, a new podcast from BuzzFeed News Opinion, where we talk with people at the crossroads of the new American politics. I'm Sarah Leonard, your host in New York City. Today, we're talking about socialists and the Democrats. While Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is the best known, she's only one of a wave of socialist and socialist allied candidates challenging Democratic stalwarts in primaries. This has proved something of an existential challenge for the party. Can socialists be Democrats? And if socialists are winning, should the party turn towards socialism? And what even is socialism anyway? To answer these questions, we're talking today with Michigan congressional candidate Rashida Tlaib and journalist Kate Aronoff to get at the tensions between socialism and the party. When you start putting labels on there that people don't fully understand, uh, you're, you're, never, you're gonna lose them. You're gonna disconnect with them. Tlaib is running for a spot in the U.S. House in Michigan's 13th Congressional District. After winning her primary, she is now running unopposed, which means that she is all but guaranteed to serve as one of the first Muslim women in Congress. And like AOC, she is a member of Democratic Socialists of America. Welcome, Rashida, and congratulations. How do you feel? It feels fantastic. Uh, it's, uh, I describe it as happy chaos. Uh, a lot going on very quickly. I just, I kind of, you know, I'm waiting for this bit of a the media bliss to kind of calm down so I can, I can really try to focus on, um, you know, being able to hit the ground running when I get there in January. A couple years ago, right after the 2018 election, Keith Ellison was running for chair of the DNC, and a Times editor tweeted, "Defeated Dems could have tapped Rust Belt populists to head the party. Instead, Black Muslim progressive from Minneapolis." And just the other day, Senator Tammy Duckworth said Ocasio-Cortez is the future of the party in the Bronx, but you can't win the White House without the Midwest, and I don't think you can go too far to the left and still win the Midwest. So, okay, why does everybody think that the Midwest will only vote white or only vote Christian or only go moderate? What is going on here? I just, you know, it continues. I always say this. I think members of Congress and some people in leadership are so disconnected with the American people. And I and I don't say that to, to criticize this incredible work that both sides, you know, have been really trying to, to, to do. But, you know, half of my colleagues on the, on the congressional floor are millionaires, are people that have really been far too far away from what is actually happening on the ground. I don't care what polling is saying. I don't care what uh, the different kinds of political strategies that everybody talks about, it, it, it always results in the complete opposite, primarily because of the disconnect and not being able to really focus on uh, the needs of the, the people and actually listening to them. Uh, and, and again, you know, I think uh, Ilhan Omar, myself, and so many have proved them wrong. It's funny how being a millionaire will will do that, do that kind of disconnect you from everyday concerns. Who would think? I don't, yeah. And, and I'm not being hate, you know, I'm not a hater, like congratulations on your success, but you're representing 750,000 people, uh, probably not even a uh, half a percent, uh, are millionaires with you. I mean, most of them are not, uh, in that income class and, you know, most of them are struggling to send their kids to schools of high quality, uh, being able to, to work one job and, you know, be able to provide for their families. So yeah, that, that, you know, it is really disconnected and it's unbelievable how harmful that has been for so many of us. Right. And I think people forget too, that 
sewer socialism came out of the Midwest 100 years ago, and it was very practical. They were super proud of creating a really nice sewer system. Um, and I think that actually reflects a lot of the values that, that you've talked about. Um, and I want to stick with socialism for a second because less than a year ago, you visited a DSA meeting and you weren't a member and they really pressed you on identifying as a socialist. And you said, you know, there's a sense of fear because we want to win. And so I was really curious, has the relationship between socialism and winning changed for you? Yeah, so you call me a DSA member, but I, I of course, I'm a pay, do-paying member, just like I am League of Women Voters, NAACP, ACLU, Michigan Democratic Party. I define myself on issues, um, and one of the great partnerships that I have is DSA. I mean, they're one of the few that will stand up with me against corporate tax breaks. I can't get sometimes my Michigan Democratic Party to be with me on that issue, and so I am very strongly um, in line with a number of issues for DSA. But I feel like I don't want to be boxed in. I mean, when I say a fear of winning, what I mean is when you start defining yourself in a particular party, that's when you lose people. Uh, people that genuinely believe in universal health care, believe in a minimum wage increase. When you start putting labels on there that people don't fully understand, uh, you're, you're, never, you're going to lose them. You're going to disconnect with them. But growing up in Detroit, the labor movement was founded by socialists. Uh, uh, the first labor lawyer for the UAW was Maurice Sugar who was identified as a socialist. So yes, a lot of working class kind of movement work uh, started with uh, so many people from the socialist movement, socialism. For you, is there a distinction between being a socialist and being a progressive or or not really? I hate the identifiers. I, I, <laughs> what is a progressive? What is a liberal? Like my brother, who is actually conservative, I have one of those in my family. And uh, he, you know, he's like, well, what does that really mean? I was like, I don't know. You call me a liberal. What does that really mean? Again, I think we need to really try to focus more on where we stand on particular issues versus these labels that actually the general American people, people like my mom, don't fully understand. Right. And to stick on it for one more second, you know, DSA, like you said, is a pretty big tent organization, even within DSA, people have a pretty wide range of opinions. Um, but a lot of those positions are still considered anathema on the Hill. And, you know, for example, the stance on the Israel-Palestine conflict and support for BDS. So how are you sort of navigating that? I mean, I, I come from the place of humanity and values. Uh, I always tell people I'm coming with these experiences that I have growing up in a predominantly African-American community when it comes to even Palestine and Israel. The fact that, you know, you can't say that you're for freedom of speech and for our country, America, if you don't allow people to support economic um, boycott or BDS. And so I come from a place of supporting those kinds of values and supporting humanity. And I have to do that so I don't alienate people that really do want the end result to be peace and equality and justice for all. Uh, I think sometimes we really threaten the movement by you know, choosing people like either with us or you're not. Uh, and I really am one of those, I'm not a centrist. I mean, I am for uh, really disinvesting in racist countries, disinvesting in our own American aid to go towards countries that treat people less than, but also uh, use our resources, our own American resources against um, the, the whole core value of civil rights and equality and justice for all, not based on faith, ethnicity, income, and all those things that I think make us who we are. And besides your politics, I want to ask you a little bit about tactics. 
during the 2016 election, you got dragged out of an event, if I recall, for heckling Trump. I believe you had some questions about the Constitution. I don't know. Heckling to me reduces the value of the fact that I asked a man who's running for president of the United States, a really important question, which is, have you ever read the U.S. Constitution? And I was with 12 other women, but I'm not, this is not being me defensive. I just, the word heckling sounds like I was like, you know, just trying to, to mess with him or something. No, I really had a really serious question. I was hoping you would answer. I think I regard heckling in a more positive light coming from a a childhood of like going to punk shows. Um, And I think so lately there's been all this controversy over civility, basically, where, you know, DSAers and other activists interrupted the DHS secretary's dinner. She was overseeing the separation of families, imprisonment of children at the border. And they actually took a lot of heat, including from Democrats. for protesting someone when they were off duty. And I was interested in what you make of these civility debates. Uh, It's interesting. It's happening in Detroit. So we now have a mayor um, and uh, our various council members, and you hear them saying, we brought civility back to Detroit City Council. I can tell you, you know, for many of us, that means uh, shut up, sit down and take it. And so for me, I absolutely supported the DSA members for going after, in, in many ways, uh, demanding um, you know, justice for those children that were separated from their mothers and, and their parents and their family. And so I can tell you, I see it such a great thing about being American, that we can do that, that we're supposed to do that. We're supposed to challenge people because I'll tell you the process right now, the democratic process is so tainted with corporate greed, is so tainted by so-called political strategies instead of the needs of the American people and the fact that we don't want to be identified or want to be standing in this moment of time, this dark moment where we're separating infant children away from their parents uh, uh, and be silent about it. Absolutely not. Everybody had a right. Those are public servants that work for us and they have to be held accountable to us. And that, to us. And that sometimes mean, means civil disobedience. Right. You can make a pretty strong case that the greater incivility is not interrupting dinner. I think um, so. <laughs> uh, one narrative that has emerged also from these primaries, there have been some incredible victories like yours, um, but there have also been failures of left-wing campaigns that are challenging Democratic centrists. And so, you know, Abdul El-Sayed in Michigan or Kenyala Ng in Hawaii, they lost their primaries. And so I'm curious, do you think that there are limits to running an unabashed left-wing campaign, at least in certain parts of the country? No, I think, honestly, Dr. El-Sayed, Abdul El-Sayed being on top of the ticket helped me. I think, you know, I won by less than a thousand votes. He inspired and motivated a generation of Michigan uh, people, uh, young people, especially under the age of 35, to come out and vote. And I really, I mean, I can't specifically show how or what, but being on the ticket and being someone that has campaigned for over a year for governor has helped me, I think, excel and be, um, you know, be successful. Same thing with anybody running for office. I don't see it as a failure, honestly. He uplifted me and many others. I can tell you, looking at uh, a young man, uh, who ran for state senate, uh, Abe Arash, I believe that's how you say his name. And and Abe, oh, we just know him as Abe. And Abe was incredible. I mean, he ran in a district that was very diverse. Uh, and he won. Uh, he didn't win, but he came in second. Uh, and I really think it's because of that kind of 
across the board, people of color and different uh, backgrounds running for office at the same time. Right. And it's interesting because I think a lot of the media commentary has swirled around this idea that the left may be ascendant, but somehow it has failed to completely transform the Democratic Party in two years. And that means there is a failure. Is the next election going to be even more dramatic? What direction are things headed in? I think there's just a new generation of people like me. Uh, people like us don't think about running for office. You know, we are not part of the establishment. You know, we, I was told, you know, wait in line. I didn't know there was a line, uh, that it wasn't our time. And so I can tell you there has been this organic kind of call to action by, you know, women, by people of color, by all kinds of folks of different backgrounds. They're not waiting for someone to ask them to run or waiting to tell for someone to tell them it's your turn. And so it is going up against that kind of establishment that has been here and really, you know, has disconnected with so many of us here in Michigan. And I think it's going to happen organically for us to be able to change the face and really the true movement work that needs to happen within the Democratic Party. I was just sort of curious about this. I know that you have uh, two kids and that you're the oldest of 14. I was the oldest of only three. And I know it is a lot of work to take care of kids. And childcare is something that I think rarely takes center stage on the agenda, but it's something that everyone in this country needs. We really lag far behind other wealthy countries in terms of providing it. It means that people who work bear a very heavy burden. People who are single parents going to school bear a very heavy burden. Is that a piece of policy that, that you think about and that you're interested in? Absolutely. So I'm an attorney at the Sugar Law Center for Economic and Social Justice. I mean, we are, you know, the corner, you know, kind of leaders on working justice, uh, workers justice issues. And we are part of a coalition that is supporting paid sick leave and child care uh, um, uh, rights, because uh, I do think it's a right. We are seeing more and more women become the primary breadwinner for their families. We are seeing that no matter what, I we can't have single, you know, one person in the family used to be able to just work and we'd be fine, but that's not the case anymore. And to be honest, most of us, both men and women, we want to work. We want to get out there. We want to provide for our families uh, and make sure that they are being taken care of. And so childcare is extremely important. In your campaign, you have garnered a lot of support, um, fundraising and otherwise, from the Palestinian-American community and also other immigrant communities in your district. And obviously, there's a lot of pride in your success. And I was really curious how you think about internationalism. Do you think about uh, what the people in your district are dealing with? And do you think about what they have in common with other people in other countries who are dealing with the same sorts of racial oppression, class oppression, and so forth? Yeah, you should see. I mean, I am so proud, so incredibly proud. 8,000 donors from across the country, from all different backgrounds, not only Palestinian, but I mean, immigrants. Uh, so many people don't realize that even if you're a green card holder, you can contribute and be part of this democratic process, which is really incredible. Um, and these are individuals that, you know, I remember this woman saying, you know, I'm going to give you this $50. Because you winning will, you know, inspire my grandchildren. Um, so many of them don't feel like they can tell people they're Muslim or that they tell people uh, that their parents are immigrants. And so it, it was for them so much more than just, you know, getting somebody as, um, you know, active on the social justice front, but more somebody that could be their daughter, could be their sister, their mother. Uh, and so that that is what really was incredibly um, inspiring during this whole process that I didn't expect. 
Uh, I really didn't. And uh, it was really just a great movement to kind of see through social media and through, oh, you know, this person told me about you that was back out in Texas that said, you know, somebody had told me about you and you're, you still have family in Palestine. That's incredible. And I said, yeah. And they were just solely inspired by the possibility of someone like me getting elected. What I can tell you is when I go and speak to the same individuals about uh, international human rights, I tell them, you know what I'm dealing with in Detroit, right here in the United States of America, is families getting their water shut off. The fact that I have this crisis right now with foreclosures, the fact that less than half of my families don't own their own home. And when I talk to people, um, especially those even now doing some media outlets and outside, you know, the, from, from different parts of the country, from Chile and other places, I think, you know, there's this misconception in America that we don't get it. We don't get what war does because maybe we don't feel it, you know, right directly. But boy, do we understand what it means not to get access to good quality health care. We know what it means not to get access to clean water. I mean, so many forget about Flint so easily and what happened. And that happened right here in the United States. And again, the, seeing my neighbors tell me that their water got shut off uh, for only less than $500. I mean, again, this is happening here. And that kind of, you know, those issues connect us to other worlds uh, outside of our country. And that's what I want to be able to, to do is connect us on, those, on that, those levels of those issues that I think really bring us together. Yeah, I think something so interesting has happened since the Bernie Sanders campaign, which was really legible to people in other countries as a source of real change in America or an actual alternative. And I was recently visiting uh, friends on the left in politics in Greece. And the first thing they asked me about was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. They wanted to know all about her campaign. They were asking about the different boroughs in New York. They had read about drop-off voters. They were ready to go. They were paying attention. And I think they underestimate how important American politics is to other people in the world, given how much influence America has and how interested they are to see something that's finally sort of legible to them as change. Um, and I think, you know, we it, it's interesting to actually sort of connect with that and realize how much these races happening locally here have have almost a global impact and definitely an effect on what people think about America. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Ilhan and my, and our, I mean, Ilhan and I winning, you, you have to know what a powerful message to the Muslim world alone. Uh, they're seeing this and they're thinking, wow. And, and, and I love being able to say, and this happened right here in America, like you can try to push us down. You can try to silence us. You can try to say, we don't, we're not allowed here that somehow we don't belong, but we'll stand up. We'll run for office. And now we're going to be members of the United States Congress. And guess what? Majority non-Muslim community elected Ilhan and I, that is even more of a powerful message and inspiration, I think, for the whole country and the world to know that we all have each other's backs, that we understand there's this, that our passion for a better world and a better America is here and people are supportive. Uh, I th think that's what even makes the whole story and journey more incredible. And so finally, I really just want to ask you, there are a number of other young candidates out there now endorsed by DSA who are running, who are still plugging away, knocking on doors every day. What do you want to say to them? Uh, just say it's, you know, this amazing time in our country needs you, that you are a light in this moment of darkness and that to speak truth to power. I mean, what we're stand up for is exactly what our country needs. 
And I can tell you more and more people without even using the terminologies, just stand up for those issues that DSA stands for, right? I mean, stand up for those uh, approaches to public service to go just beyond just voting the right way, but also making sure you come home and fight alongside your your, your family members. If it's marching uh, to stop the water shutoffs, if it's marching to stop police brutality, whatever that it is, don't think that as you run for office that you can't still continue to do that and to uplift people through that kind of movement work. That was Rashida Tlaib, who will likely be the first Muslim woman elected to Congress. For those of you watching and listening to What's Left on YouTube, yes, she was sitting in her car. Okay, so we heard from Tlaib what socialism has meant in her Michigan race. But still, what is socialism? Kate Aronoff is a contributing writer for The Intercept. She writes widely about the left and I think has some of the best political commentary on Twitter. She just published a giant article on the rapid growth of the Democratic Socialists of America. It's awesome to talk with you, Kate. Yeah, thank you. You know, people have flooded into DSA from all kinds of different places over the last couple of years. What do they have in common? Yeah, so uh, DSA members tended to come in three waves. So there were some folks who were obviously there from uh, the beginning, who were members before 2015, but really this big wave of membership started um, around Bernie Sanders' uh, primary run in 2016. So um, a lot of people came in through that, either worked on the campaign or um, were just excited by it, excited to vote for someone for the first time. Uh, And then the biggest membership spike um, until this most recent one uh, was Donald Trump's election. Uh, I talked to Maria Svart, who's the director of DSA nationally, um, and she said uh, you could see a spike in membership right after um, Trump was inaugur- or not inaugurated, was uh, was elected on on that night. So at like two a.m. Um, on on election night, and then the most recent one was Alexandria Ocasio Cortez's election uh, in New York's uh, 14th congressional district. Um, and so each of these waves has sort of brought thousands of people um, into DSA, which as of 2015 had about six thousand members, um, and it's now almost fifty thousand. I saw. I think today they hit forty nine thousand. Wow. So these spikes have really occurred around these particular elections, around particular charismatic candidates. Are there beliefs that people have in common who are coming into DSA or even maybe other socialist organizations? A lot of these are millennials. So what what do these folks believe in common? I wouldn't say on the whole people are hyper ideological who are coming into DSA. So it's a lot of people who are generally disillusioned with the Democratic Party, have not been excited about formal politics for a long time. And then seeing people like Bernie, seeing people like Alexandria, um, got them excited and 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 you know kind of raised the question that you know we can vote for someone who we're excited about and would are willing to do work for that. Uh, and so you know people are. Um, Really not satisfied with what's happened in the last in the last several years. Um, right, this got, is a generation of the financial crisis. Right, generation of the financial crisis, and a lot of people who are really excited about uh, Barack Obama, and over the course of his administration, got disillusioned um, in part, you know, because of the financial crisis and because um, it became so hard to find jobs, so hard to make ends meet, um, and you know, millennials are living with, um, in many cases, tens and thousands of dollars in debt. Um, and so there are these like generational uh, sort of considerations that have shaped uh, a lot of people's politics and made socialism seem really appealing as an alternative. Now, 
For me, when I think about socialism in America, the first thing I think of is probably not democratic primary elections. And yet, that seems to be actually what has brought the most people into DSA is somehow being involved in democratic primaries. So there's this funny intersection now between socialism and the Democratic Party. And I'm curious, I my sense is there are actually some fault lines on this issue within DSA and among socialists, should we be this involved in electoral politics? So I'm curious how that breaks down and what people are thinking about that. Yeah, there's Differing opinions. I mean, in any organization of almost 50,000 people, there will be various camps. Um, and DSA sort of prides itself as being a, a kind of heterodox, pluralistic organization. Um, not a lot of party discipline here. Not a lot of party discipline, which has worked, uh, I think, mostly in DSA's favor. You talk to some of these candidates who are running as socialists or with socialist endorsements. And I was wondering if you could give me a sense, do these candidates actually identify as socialists? It's a range. So I think uh, as good politicians will, they will give answers which um, are tactful um, in, 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 uh, when asked if they're a socialist. So um, Cynthia Nixon, I think, for instance, says uh, democratic socialism aligns with my values that I have always had. I mean, people like Carlos Ramirez Rosa in Chicago, who's an alderman, um, he will say I'm a socialist. I, I'm, I'm fairly sure, at least last time I talked to him. Um, Julia Salazar, of course, will say um, that she is a democratic socialist. Um, and I think people tend to say, at least politicians, the, the sort of baseline answer is that the policies that I want could best be described as socialism. Most people offer some uh, some sort of version of that. Um, whether or not they will go to bat and say, you know, I am throwing down as a democratic socialist is, is not something that I think is held in common among all the candidates who have sought DSA's endorsement. Right. Still a little like Cold War stigma there to, to full out coming and saying, I'm a socialist. And so I wonder, if you're a candidate and you don't quite identify as a socialist or, or you sort of recently thought about it, um, what is the advantage of allying with a group like DSA as many of these candidates have across the country? What What is the real relationship here? I think a big part of it, especially in places like New York or Pittsburgh, where there are a lot of people who are getting increasingly trained in how to do electoral work, how to cut turf, how to knock doors, um, there's a part of it which is just bodies. There's people who can knock doors, people who can phone bank, um, and can really make a difference, especially in um, races for things like state legislature, where often these margins come down to, like, a thousand votes. Um, and so if you can turn out 800 volunteers um, and have them knock on, you know, 30 doors a day, um, that can really, that can win you an election. And 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 so I think that there's a, there's a sort of... Uh, utilitarian calculus to it um, that I think is is both, you know, it's not that they're not progressive, it's not that they're not um, aligned with many of the things that DSA uh, wants, but there's also a, a sense that, you know, this is a pretty novel um, army of uh, volunteers that can offer, which is actually, you know, more than in some cases labor unions, more than other progressive groups can offer. And so let's zoom out and, and think about the term democratic socialism or socialism. Is this army of volunteers taking us straight to the gulag? <laughs> I, I, I don't think so. Um, it's I, a relief. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think, I think people really want to knock on your door and talk to you about Medicare for all um, and not um, the, the dictatorship of the proletariat. 
And so when we talk about the term democratic socialism, that has a historical origin. And can you talk a little bit about where that came from and what it was trying trying to distinguish itself from? So for a while in American history, when there were socialists, the term democrat, it wasn't democratic socialism, it was just socialism. Um, as um, particularly the USSR um, came into being and some of the sort of atrocities of of Stalin um, came to be made known um, throughout the world and, of course, responding to a sort of Cold War uh, era fear of socialism um, that was, of course, premised on red baiting, um, people started to say democratic socialism. So to reinsert that um, democracy is actually a a sort of central part of socialism and so to make that clear and so socialists in the U.S. started using this term democratic socialism to kind of differentiate themselves from authoritarian socialism elsewhere. And what, practically speaking, is more democratic about the socialism that we're talking about now? What do people mean by that? So I think when you ask DSA members kind of how they understand socialism, most people will give you some answer of people having more control over the things that affect their lives. So right now, um, you and I do not control how the economy works. Um, We don't control, you know, where we get our food from. Um, There are all of these sort of decisions which are are outside of our hands. And so um, part of what socialism says is that people should have a sort of basic level of control over their lives. Um, And that extends to everything from kind of how factories are run, for instance, um, to, you know, basic things like uh, your, your city government should should be um, accountable to you. Um, and so there's a range of that, right? Like traditionally we thought of socialism as um, to get very wonky, like ownership over the means of production. And so I don't think everybody is saying um, everybody needs to, you know, go take over the factories. We don't have as many factories as we did um, when we started um, using those terms. But um, there's, a, there's a basic level of, of ownership um, that I think is is key to socialism, which is kind of inherently democratic. Right. And it's interesting because we don't actually, are there models that people point to for what we're actually going for? Are we talking about Sweden? Are we talking about Venezuela? Are we talking about a 12-person collective that's going to live on a farm? Like, what does democratic control actually look like, and are there models we can point to? It's interesting because I think a lot of people do point to places like Sweden and Norway and the Scandinavian social democracies, um, which are technically capitalist countries, um, but where large parts of the of the um, society have been taken out of the market or were never on the market to begin with. So things like healthcare, things like education, are deemed as public goods, um, and so so in the U.S large parts of our um, our economy are privatized um, and so are subject to market forces. Um, and so what, what happens in social democracies is that, you know, that's less true. And so the state provides health care, the state provides education, provides a sort of basic level of things. And so that is kind of what some people are talking about. I don't think anybody's looking at Venezuela and saying that's where we need to be. So a lot of people would say, and I've heard this from a lot of, a lot of Democrats, a lot of liberals, um, Okay, great. You're talking about the New Deal. Why not just call it the New Deal? I think the best answer to that is that people aren't, right? It's like people are calling it socialism. Um, They're not calling themselves New Deal Democrats, and there's something clarifying to that term. Um, And so, you know, I think that's the the sort of— 
one reaction to that. I think the other is that there's something really clarifying about socialism that you don't get from a descriptor like New Deal. There is this historical tradition um, in the U.S. in particular, and there's a, there's a vision to it, right? So um, I don't know if our, our vision and our North Star should be the New Deal. Um, as, much, as, as much as I love the Civilian Conservation Corps, um, there were deep flaws to how the New Deal was administered. Um, and, and socialism really is a vision for a different kind of society where people have their basic needs met um, and once. And so there's a, a kind of, um, there's something to work toward about socialism. There's something really ambitious about it that I think people are attracted to. So there are a lot of terms that people left of center in this country use to describe themselves, progressive, liberal. How are those terms different from socialist? I think liberal at this point, I see used mostly as uh, sort of a, a slur. I don't know if that's the yeah, right word to it, use. Tell me why. I think it's it's gotten derided. I don't know if it's the post-Hillary thing, like a, a post-2016 thing, but I am I very rarely see anyone refer to themselves as a liberal. It's almost always an insult, either from the right or from the left, thrown at um, kind of centrist Democrats. Um, and so I think the reaction to that has been to embrace the term progressive, um, which I don't know if means a whole lot. I don't think it's something that really like, I think at one point it referred to things like the progressive era um, and sort of big like welfare state policies maybe. Um, but at this point it seems mainly to be the sort of catch-all for Democrats who are eager to embrace um, something left of what the Democratic Party has looked like for the last 10 years. Um, and so I don't, yeah, I don't know if liberal or progressive really have um, much meaning. Socialist um, means many things to many different people, um, but on a sort of basic level, um, I think means that uh, the many should have access to society's resources and not just the few, um, and that people should have a basic level of control over their own lives. But progressives wouldn't disagree with that. That's true. Yeah. And and I think, you know, we're still sort of sorting out what democratic socialism means in America. Um, and it will look different than it has from other places. But I think what you would hear from folks who identify as socialists today um, is, you know, everything from sort of more uh, ownership over um, over the workplace, um, a, a greater level of decision making there, um, to, you know, a basic responsibility of the state to provide the tenets of life. And I think that is something that um, sort of more, you know, quote unquote liberals or even progressives within the Democratic Party um, might disagree with. They might disagree that the market um, is not necessarily the best um, venue to or vehicle um, for providing um, housing, for instance. Regarding the term liberal, I mean, socialists actually would take great umbrage if you describe them as a liberal. It clearly has a certain kind of content. Oh, and have. I mean, after Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez won, um, there are all these New York—the New York Times has been consistently unable to sort of um, differentiate between these terms, <laughs> between liberal, between progressive. And so uh, Alexandria was described as a strong liberal or something like that, which isn't quite right. I'm going to keep pushing you on this. Why isn't it right? Answering that question requires understanding just how weird it is when we talk about liberal in the U.S. So liberal, like in political science, can refer to many things. So um, liberal can mean a sort of classical liberalism, which is um, sort of Adam Smith-style um, market liberalism, which is that, that um, we should let markets sort of do as they will, kind of a laissez-faire-style capitalism. Um, liberal is also has this connotation in the U.S., which means anything kind of 
that isn't a Republican, um, essentially. And so I think those terms just get mixed up so much. Um, and then there's this sort of uh, notion of liberal rights. There's a notion that um, a, a liberal is someone who wants a, uh, you know, civil liberties, who wants things um, for people not to be thrown in jail for speaking out. Um, and I think that's a, a vision of liberalism which most socialists would actually embrace. But all those things kind of get tied up together, um, and it's not really clear um, when it's referred, you know, when liberal is used to refer to people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, which one is being used? And I think the default has been um, the sort of connotative definition of liberalism, which is um, just everything that's not Republican. And, and if it sounds kind of leftish, then uh, it's liberal. And so the differentiation between liberal and left, I think, is something that um, we haven't quite uh, wrapped our heads around. Right. And maybe, too, this idea that for liberals, it's about an equal right to compete, whereas for, in socialism, there's much more focus on equity of outcome, among other things. Part of why the establishment Democrats are upset about socialism is because it's a threat to their class interests. Um, and so that's— Say more. <laughs> uh Many uh, politicians are lawyers, are wealthy people, um, and spend a lot of their time with other wealthy people. And so th those are sort of the circles that they move in. And so a, a political approach which says we should redistribute society's resources um, and sort of dismantle the 1% as it exists currently is sort of inherently threatening if you were a millionaire or part of the 1%. Hmm. Being a millionaire really does something to your perspective, you're saying. Yeah. So, what is socialism? It's not the New Deal, and it's definitely not the Gulag. But people are craving more democracy, more equity, a bigger vision, even if that vision remains just over the horizon. And while still loosely defined, it's already proving it can win. That's it for this week's show. If you have thoughts about socialism and the Democrats, hit us up at whatsleft at buzzfeed.com. Be sure to subscribe. We'll be releasing new episodes every Monday. And rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference and helps new people learn about the show. What's Left is produced by me, Sarah Leonard, Patrick McMenamin, Ben Dalton, Dara Levy, Dan Bauza, and Cece Allen. What's Left is a production of BuzzFeed News Opinion. Thanks for tuning in to our first episode. See you next week where we'll discuss what's left.